Hi, I'm Helis Kendrick. And I'm Chris Keane. And this is Series 2 of the Recruit for Spouses podcast. This episode is with the incredible Wendy Shand. Mother, military spouse and entrepreneur, Wendy started her business with just £80. She managed to grow it to an incredible £11 million turnover. We hear how she did it, but firstly, let's hear about where it all started. I am pretty rootless in terms of my background. My parents were both born in Africa and then my sister and I grew up in Africa and we then travelled with my father's job. So we were in the Middle East, the Far East, America, and then I've lived myself in Greece and France and so on. So entirely itinerant, I suppose, and nomadic. I thought quite well prepared for military life. And then I I went to university, did geography, came out of university, having travelled, lived in France during my second year at university. So really a bug in me to move around. I came out of university, was gunning for a big marketing job. I thought I was going to have a big full-on London marketing career. And then my soon-to-be husband, Rob, stepped into the picture and he was training to be a fast jet pilot all over the place in York and then he was in North Wales and all over. And then as it became clear that our relationship was getting deeper and deeper, it also became very clear that my big London marketing career was going to not work in that situation because no-one's flying a Harrier out of London City Airport. So I retrained. I did what every good Air Force wife or military wife does, and I did my teacher training, thinking I'd have the ultimate in portable jobs, specialised in teaching children in the early years, and did enjoy that, to be fair, until Rob got posted to Anglesey, to RAF Valley, whereupon, if you don't speak Welsh you can't teach and my teaching career came to an end which I think would probably be something that most spouses or many spouses will be entirely familiar with. That's a junction that many of us take isn't it we think that we know what we're going to do Mm -hmm. and then you get to a crossroads and something like that happens. Mm -hmm. So the next stage then you decided to start up a business but it wasn't just I'm going to start up a business tell us what happened I suppose my CV was already looking a bit ragged. When I'd gone for certain teaching posts, people had looked at my CV and they said, but your husband's in the Air Force, how long are you going to be here? So definitely it was becoming clear that this wasn't an easy road, you know, following your partner around. I'd had one child before we moved to RAF Valley and then we sat on Anglesey, had another child while we were there. Very, very few opportunities for people on Anglesey. It's a very rural area, there's not a lot going on there. And obviously this is a long time before the internet had really got its act together and we were all working virtually from home and all of that. If I was going to do anything that really stimulated me, I was going to have to do something that was a bit more out, outside the box. Anglesey's a fabulous place for about three weeks of the year, and the rest of the year there's a horizontal fog blowing through the island. The vegetation gives it all away. There's very little there due to the wind. I think if I was really honest, I love having the children. We have three now. absolutely love being a mum, but I don't want all my hours and days to be spent doing washing, cleaning. I needed something else to keep me going. So a lot of people say, well, you knew what you were getting yourself in for when you, you know, married into the military, you had a good career, you had three young children, you, you know, they look at our subsidised housing and they look at all these great things, rose-tinted glasses almost. Do you remember how you felt at those moments when your children were really young? Really, really tough. And tearful and angry actually Mm. so when Rob was on the Harrier Force I think actually we didn't have such a bad go of it compared to certainly 
army spouses and navy spouses where the separations can be much longer. But he was at that time spending a lot of time serving in Italy and flying over Kosovo. And when the Harrier was in the UK, it was night flying. And so it was a really, really lonely existence. It was, I was lucky he was there for the birth of our first son. I know there are many, many military spouses who are absent for the birth of their children. So I know I was one of the lucky ones. And I had a caesarean section with Barnaby and we lived out in the middle of nowhere. And before I knew it, he'd gone and I wasn't able to drive. And, you know, there I was with a massive scar across my belly, a tiny screaming baby and him off doing what he needed to do. And that's incredibly lonely. And I think it's very, very short sighted of people to say, well, you knew what you were letting yourself in for. I have heard those words come mm-hmm. out of my mum's mouth. And I think that's a really unfair thing mm. to say. I think until you've been there and you've been there at three o'clock in the morning with the sick baby and the pipes that are not working and the builder that's run off doing a terrible job and all the other decisions that you have to make, I don't think you really understand. Rob came back from one detachment. I'd been overseeing a whole bunch of work that we were getting done to the house. And I thought, OK, we'll go to John Lewis and we'll choose some curtains together. That'll be a really nice thing to do. And this really doesn't reflect very well on me, but I think it's something that most people relate to. We walked into John Lewis and I said, oh, what do you think of this fabric? And he said, I don't really like it. And at which point I just sort of kind of flared up. And what I know in retrospect was that at that point, I didn't really think he had a veto over, you know, the choice of fabric, simply because he hadn't been there for all the other important decisions that I had had to make and oversee and do in his absence. Mm. It brought out quite an angry side in me, actually. Mm. I really wasn't cut out for those long separations I don't think our marriage would have survived very long actually to be honest if we'd continued to do that and adaptability and resilience are things that we talk about all the time Mm -hmm. but it's at these moments when we don't realize we're building resilience we're building the adaptability Mm -hmm. and it ends up serving us very well in future life so tell us then how you were on holiday. You yep. decided one day that you were going to go to, was it France? On yeah, so we'd done a series of holidays with one child, explored a club holiday, explored different types of holiday, and, and sort of each one had been a, a learning curve about what doesn't work about that particular type of holiday. And so I'd come to the conclusion that maybe the best type of holiday would be a cottage holiday, and we'd rent a house in France. Rob and I both speak French. It wasn't a country we were worried about. So I... I started to do all this research. So this was around 2003, 2004, going a long way back in the evolution of the internet. And I couldn't find anything. I was looking for child-friendly holidays, child-friendly villas, child-friendly cottages. I was looking at all those search terms and not really finding anything. And then looking around my house and going, well, I can't even get to Tesco's, let alone get on holiday with all of the bump that's required to move. We had two children under the age of three by that stage. You know, how on earth do you do it? Anyway, my mum and dad said, well, we will, we're happy to drive down to France. We'll all go on holiday together. You bring all your kit from North Wales down to Hampshire and we'll take it to you. So, I mean, just the sheer logistics of it was ridiculous. And they drove to France with all our kit and we flew. It worked really well. Only that there was still in this house some really gaping gaps in my mind as a mum with small children there were no stair gates so with two small children just on toddling around that was and really marble stairs so if any of them had fallen down those stairs you'd have had a trip to the hospital but the thing that turned everything around the thing that really made me sit up and think gosh this is a real problem is that Barnaby our eldest he was two at the time fell into the unenclosed swimming pool in the garden and you think it's going to be a big splashy affair but actually he just sank and there's no noise it was just a very quiet he slid in and it was very quiet and he just 
began to sink down to the bottom. We were really lucky. We were outside in the garden, so we weren't, you know, we weren't being negligent. And my dad jumped in and pulled him out. But that was a real turning point for me in thinking, my God, we're going to be lucky if we get back home without having been to the hospital, let alone something worse than that. And when I came back from holiday, I was sitting in our quarter in Anglesey, thinking, I don't really understand why the travel industry isn't addressing the very real needs of families in this time of their lives. I'd lived in Putney and Wandsworth, so those are you know, those are areas where you can't move for prams being pushed up and down. So I knew that there were huge concentrations of mums with small children, and what on earth are they doing when they go on holiday? Anyway, cutting a long story short, I came back to a very big pile of post after that holiday. So this idea was whirring around my head. And as I was going through this post, which of course when you're in a married quarter is not all your post, it's the post of people who've lived in that house (laughs) for the previous 10 years, isn't it? And someone down the line had signed up to a newsletter or information coming out of a university down in the South of Wales, which I can't actually quite remember, but it was offering free online courses in enterprise. And I was thinking, well, that's brilliant. That's I can do that sitting on Anglesey. I don't need to go anywhere. So I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I had this kind of kernel of an idea mulling away in my head. And so I thought, okay, I'll sign up for that course. So I signed up for that course in enterprise and started doing the modules. And the first module was, what's the big idea? The second module was, what's the business plan look like? And I think by the time I'd got to the end of the second module I was thinking I don't need another degree I don't need another set of numbers after or letters after my name I actually think there's something in this and so cutting a long story short I set up what was a a villa agency specializing in holidays for small children and babies so I identified a group of properties in France in a small area of France just to set up in the Dordogne went out and spoke to their owners I said to them you know would it be useful to get bookings outside of peak season outside of July and August because that's when mums are travelling with small children. And they said, well, do you think you can do that? And I said, well, I don't know, but, you know, we've got nothing to lose by giving it a go. Because, of course, those weeks outside of peak season are sitting empty, and those still cost the owners money. They're still sitting on a very expensive asset. They're still paying the cost of the pool and the mowing the lawn and all of that, yet not getting any income from it. So there was this real kind of marriage made in heaven if I could find owners who understood and would listen to me about what we could do to change the way the houses are. And if I could reach customers who would be willing to travel in those times, then I felt we had something special. And so that's how it started. Again, one of the nice things about sitting in North Wales is there was a little bit of grant money available. So I won £80 and launched the whole business really on £80. Then I think I got another little chunk of money, maybe 250 from an organisation called Factory Fenter. I was really excited. I was like, well, OK, I've got nothing to lose now. I've, I've got a little bit of start-up cash. I mean, what, 300 quid? That's ridiculous by today's <laughs> standards, isn't it? And started, you know, I went and got myself a printer and I bought myself a camera. And then Christmas came and we got a posting notice. <laughs> so just as I'm beginning to get myself moving on all of this, we get posted down to Portsmouth with my husband being seconded to Whale Island. A couple of months into being there, I got this call from the grant agency in North Wales saying, um, we just want to come round and check that you've used our money well. You know, we want to come and see our printer and our, our camera. And I said, hmm, small problem. I'm now sitting in a married quarter in Portsmouth. And they said, well, I'm really sorry, but your money doesn't count if you are sitting in Portsmouth. You um, are going to have to give it back. So, I mean, it, luckily it wasn't massive amounts of money, but it was one of those like, oh, OK, another, you know, knock on the head to any hope I, I had of 
doing something independent from the military. But it didn't really stop me. I, I had already seen potential. I had my nine properties from my trip to France. I had had somebody create a very simple website. I had somebody create a very simple logo, really all very, very low cost. And that's entirely doable now, you know, on places like Fiverr. That's actually even easier to do now than it was in 2004. And I wrote a couple of press releases. I wrote one very specific press release to the financial sectors and one to the travel sectors travel journalists and went to a music with mummy class with my two babies in Portsmouth or in Southsea and I got a call on my mobile and it was a lady called Rachel Bridge who was the enterprise editor for the Times entrepreneurs section and she said Wendy you know I love your story I'd love to write about it can we send a photographer and that was really what kicked it all off and then the following Sunday was like three words in page 19 of the Times travel sector. But that was enough to just give it a little bit of a boost and and off we were. Take me back to that moment when you had that phone call from the guys in Wales saying you're going to have to give the money back. What was going through your mind at that point? I remember really clearly sitting on the stairs of our married quarter in Southsea, holding the phone and just sort of thinking, what do I do now? But actually, at some level, being really grateful that they had given me a ticket to get going. You know, just being really grateful that actually without that, maybe I wouldn't have done what I'd done. And I just thought, well, if they hadn't given it to me, I wouldn't have started. But now I've started, I may as well continue. I think a lot in military life as well, you become very sort of grateful. You have to look at the positive side in yep. so many different situations. And I think that is a very good sort of almost when you start a business is that whole positivity and always looking there may be 10 things going wrong but focusing on that one thing Mm. that's going right Mm -hmm. do you feel that that really helped you as well that sort of enormously and I see you know as I look around other spouses that I know from our military life they are an incredible lot I mean Mm. we are an incredible lot we shouldn't take that for granted we've got so much tenacity and get up and go and you know the number of times we move house and we we set stuff up and we have to start from scratch and go at it again and rebuild and rebuild and rebuild I think we're really quite well programmed Mm. for that if you don't have the tenacity military life probably isn't isn't for you you don't have a choice really you just have to get on with it and get the car MOT'd and you've still got little children running around despite how tired you are how much did you rely on your community of other military spouses when you were living in your military quarter so you have to remember that this was 2004, 2005, 2006. It was a completely different landscape. There were not people just setting up businesses left, right and centre like there are now. There wasn't all the information on the internet. There was very, very little going on. So there were a lot of people looking at me curiously, like, you know, what on earth is she doing? I didn't tell very many people about what I was actually doing, partly probably because of that fear of failure. If it was going to fail, I didn't want to fail spectacularly. I was going to just do it iteratively and just quietly and kind of like mind my own business. Having said that, the people I did tell, I think bemused is probably the word that they would use and curious but they were really brilliant in terms of looking after the children and all of that kind of stuff and at that point my biggest barrier to getting anything done was childcare. really Mm. one of the things I had to overcome I suppose was the decision to put the children into childcare. that was probably the biggest startup cost actually was the childcare cost Mm. and I think that's something that lots of spouses relate to because obviously you're a bit of a one-man band for quite a lot of the time so it's an expensive decision but I don't regret that for one moment and I felt the children needed it and I felt I definitely needed it and I needed to do something different that was my own thing and not 
this all-encompassing world that the military ends up being. Mm. And so that sort of time was obviously quite unique and you were very much on your own you were very Mm. much kind of putting the children to bed your husband was away a lot so how did you kind of keep building your business what was your kind of you obviously had a vision a clear vision of where you wanted to go but how did you keep building it it was just a sort of one step in front of the other by the time we got to Portsmouth actually he was around a lot more he was helping to design the aircraft carrier at that time and so it was a much more he was around a lot more and that was easier for sure. I was surrounded by a lot of wives, particularly down in the South Sea, whose husbands were away in submarines and all sorts, you know, away for a very, very long time. So I, I um, really considered myself incredibly lucky. But it was just a question of putting one foot in front of the other and just sort of, just kind of like, oh, I'll just see what happens if I do this next step. Okay, this article's going to come out in the Times. Okay, I don't really know what I'm going to do next, but I'll just see what happens then. And then I'll speak to this person. And and it was just literally that one foot in front of the other. I I didn't have a a vast vision for it. I thought, oh, well, you know, I could have 20 houses on my website in this small area of France and I'll just put a few leaflets out and see what happens. And then as soon as it got into the newspapers, the PR started. That's when I got phone calls from owners all over Europe saying, right, I've got a house in Spain, I've got a house in Portugal, I've got a house in the Canary Islands. And then all of a sudden there's me going, I can't just drop everything and go and visit all these houses. Because that was a very important premise for me, was that I would go and see the houses. Obviously there was only me at the beginning, and Rob was helping me a little bit in the evenings. I couldn't just drop everything and go and see these properties. It was quite a slow process, and I'd, I'd go, if I got a collection of houses in one country then I'd go and hire a little Renault Twingo and drive around and see these properties. Totally naive thing to do, because has anyone looked at the size of France? I mean, it's blinking <laughs> enormous. You know, and even if you fly into one regional airport, it still can be many hours between each of these properties. But that was part of the adventure and just had this spark of feeling good about what I was doing and feeling like it was the right thing to be doing. Did you take the children with you on these trips? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. So a lot of the trips we would do in the summer holidays and all four of us, we've got a third child now, but at the time all four of us would go. So the children, yes, would definitely be spending hours in the car driving from one place to the other. I have to say they were brilliant. And how did you educate yourself around sort of the finances, profit and loss, balance sheet and marketing? And how did you sort of build your team at that point? Really slowly and really badly, I think, is there is the, uh, My husband, I'm very, very lucky that he has a very different personality profile to me. So all the stuff I am strong at and the things I'm weak at, he mirrors. And so he naturally took over things like the balance sheet and so on as we began to understand what that was. I mean, really, I wouldn't have been able to tell you one end of a balance sheet from another in the early days. And I was feeling my way along the marketing and the customer service and so on. And then my first person that I hired was another military wife again down in the South Sea so she started doing some of the admin some of the bookings for me she'd speak to some customers literally this is hysterical we'd walk the paperwork between our two houses you know the bookings sheets we'd all have on paper at that time and we would literally be walking them backwards and forwards between the two houses I came up with an interesting thing when we were there the married quarters at South Sea all sort of look in on on a sort of shared park area or a shared pavement area the kids used to play I remember making supper I think one night and I was looking out all these windows and I was thinking all the families in all the houses are all cooking dinner now and they will all have done the work 
the shopping, the thinking, the thought, the preparation, and now they're all cooking. What an incredible waste of effort and time all of us are putting into this thing. So Rona and I at that time came upon an idea where I said to her, why don't we one day a week, I cook double, so on Thursday night, I'll cook double of what we're having on Thursday, you cook double on Thursday, and then we'll swap on Friday, and then neither of us needs to cook on Friday. <laughs> so there was this sort of, you know, there was this sort of shared shared workload that we had at that time that was an enormous help, and she understood what I was doing and was tremendously helpful in that period. At what point did you sort of think, I've got something really good here, this is growing? Oh, my goodness. I think very early on, I think the press coverage really helped. And then we made £25,000 worth of bookings within a, a few weeks of that. I launched this company in April. Now now that I've been in travel for 17 years, I know that is absolutely the worst time to launch a travel company because bookings and all the excitement happens in January, February and March. So to be launching in April, you know, there's not very much inventory left to sell. It's a rubbish time of year to start a travel company. But nonetheless, we did £25,000 worth of bookings within a few weeks. And I was thinking, gosh, this is this is massively more than I'd expected. I mean, I thought proof of concept would be if I got one booking. And I remember at that point, Rob and I went out for one of our very, very rare date nights. And I was beginning to say to him, I am not sure I'm cut out for military life as a wife on this journey. I don't want to move every two years. I don't want to have to think about where the children are going to go to school and be second-guessing the poster. You know, we'd have these ridiculous conversations where he'd say, well, the next step, if I get promoted and this happens and this happens, we could end up in there or there, but if I don't get promoted, we could end up there or there, in which case the school situation will look like that there and the housing will look like that there. And I was like, why am I spending all my brain power in this conversation that we have no control over? I think that was a really early sign for me that, I now know that freedom and choice are my very strongest values, which are completely opposite to military life. And so I think what I was really doing in setting up TOTS was creating an exit strategy from the military for us. And I remember it must have been very early days of the business. We went out for this date night. Rob had just been promoted. He was a squadron leader and he had been promoted really early. You know, his career was on this very strong upward trajectory and I said to him I just really don't think I'm up for this whole military life <laughs> and he said to me I don't want to talk about it <laughs> and that was the end of our conversation that evening so this romantic date night this very rare date night just ended horribly like that we didn't really speak about it again and we ended up going out to France and staying with his cousin and her husband is a business coach and business coaches can't help themselves but coach. <laughs> and he spent the whole time talking to Rob and coaching Rob and he was saying to Rob, look, I'll summarise it because it was a few days worth of coaching and he said to Rob, look, on the one hand you're telling me that you want this big fancy fast jet career and on the other hand you're telling me that family and your marriage and everything is really, really important to you and the two cannot be done together not in the way that you want them to be done. And I think that must have really hit a nerve with Rob because he came back and he handed in his notice on the Monday and was ready to PVR. I don't know whether that's a, t a universal term, but a premature voluntary retirement, so PVR. So he PVR'd from the Air Force and he was ready to give up everything, that all the benefits that keep you tied into the military for a long, long time. He was ready to give all that up. 
So that was him PVRing from the RAF. But of course, remember, he was sitting on Whale Island working for the Navy. And so the Navy went, why are you going? And he said, well, you know, we want to be able to put our children through some stability. We want them to have the same house. And the Navy said, well, we can offer you that. You know, you could go up to RF Wittering, instruct pilots to fly the Harrier. You'd have a much more sedate life and you'd have exactly what you want, a quality of life. And so Rob joined the Navy. So he's now been in two of our three forces. And so we moved up to Lincolnshire. I moved the business because, of course, part of the reason it was such a good thing to do was because it was portable. So we moved up to Lincolnshire and started to make our lives steady there. And he began to do his retraining on the Harrier to get it back up to speed and was just doing a workup to go to Afghanistan. The one thing he needed to do before he could come back and, you know, have this peaceful life that we talked about and instruct pilots. And as he was doing this workup to go to Afghanistan, he had major, major engine failure. And, oh, I can feel that in my throat. Major engine failure and it had to eject from a burning Harrier. And so that was another kind of twist in the story that takes us in a, in a slightly different direction. I got a telephone call saying, your husband's just banged out is the word that RAF use. I don't like that word at all because I think it trivialises actually what's in a really incredibly serious thing. So he ejected, he'd landed in a field and was being airlifted to hospital and could I just phone the air traffic control tower for the next instalment of the story? So I ended up calling the air traffic control tower and saying, I'm the wife of the pilot that's just ejected. And there was some very young person on the other end of the phone going, oh, I've got the wife of the pilot on the line. What do I tell her? Anyway, so that was a whole nother story in all of this. I'm glad to say that he is better. Do I ask what happened at that point? So he'd lost all of the oil on takeoff, so there was something wrong with the jet that meant that basically the engine was running dry and he wasn't able to land it in time before the engine basically exploded and he was within about three or four seconds of going with the jet. On exiting a jet, you have about 40 G put through your back as you eject. It's an explosive. And that essentially broke his spine I had thought that if anything like this happened, that all sorts of very knowledgeable people would emerge out of all of the little corners of the military who were absolute experts in injection injuries. Turns out that's not what happens at all. There was nobody. It was kind of like complete silence. I got a call from the Admiral saying, I'm sorry to hear your husband's banged out of the jet. We'll have him back in the air in no time. And there's me going, you haven't got this, have you? (laughs) You don't. And so he was dealt with at the QMC in Nottingham, who have absolutely no idea about how ejection injuries work. And it turned out that they missed the fact that he'd broken his spine. So what followed was really a long period of us trying to get him better, him not getting better because they hadn't identified what the issue was. And then having to go back to the beginning and understand what had really happened. You know, it took a very long time for him to recover from that. And in the process of that, nobody ever asked how are you not just me but how was he and so once his spine was better he got back into a harrier and just went back to normal and they ended up doing a detachment to america where they have to fly the jets over the sea and they do air to air refueling so you're sitting in a jet for a very very long time and as he flew back having sat in this jet for dozens of hours 
with only himself and the sound of the jet, which of course he no longer properly trusts because it's let him down once before. He came back, landed the jet and went straight to the med centre and had a massive nervous breakdown. Again, very little support, I would say, for us as a family and for him. All it did in all of this was really make me realise that what I was doing in setting up the business and giving ourselves another way out was so important. Just an incredible story, Wendy, and huge respect to you, really. At the time, you had three young children. Mm -hmm. You were running a business. Mm -hmm. You just had to get on with it. Yeah. I mean, every single military spouse listening to this will go, oh, my gosh, you know, that is quite a thing to take on. But what happened to your business at that point? Did it keep you going? Did you just put it to um, the side? Or By that stage, we did have a fairly serious business going. I mean, albeit still very tiny, but we had, you know, big responsibilities. I'd done quite a lot of PR, and I had been followed to France by a camera crew from the BBC Money programme, and they'd been interested in what I was doing. The whole PR thing at that point was about mumpreneurs and, you know, how do you start a business as a mum with small children? I suppose I was one of the very first. And so there was a lot of interest in what I was up to, and hence I'd been followed by this camera crew. And part of this programme, so it was going out on the BBC Money programme, so part of this programme was being filmed at Downing Street... (laughs) oh I laugh at it now we were filming at Downing Street I had won an award the previous year and the award was being handed to somebody new this year and this year it was happening at Downing Street so that's to sort of give you an idea of how mums who'd set up their own businesses were being celebrated and politicians had got on board with celebrating this new thing and so two days after Rob ejected from this jet and was lying in Nottingham Hospital I had to go down to Downing Street to be filmed for this TV programme. I mean, I must have looked terrible because I'd had next to no sleep. We'd had the worst event of our entire lives. And here I was having to put on a brave face. Brave face? I mean, that's such a good term for military wives, isn't it? I mean, the big question is, did you park it and not tell them about it? Yeah, I didn't tell them. Yeah, this is about you. And this is something which is difficult because at that point you become really conflicted, don't you? Mm. Do I do the whole wife support which you absolutely want to do or do I focus and keep driving my business forward because this is what military life has a tendency to do it throws these massive curveballs at you and it's how at that moment you react isn't it absolutely and how you deal with it I think I was really guided by Rob he had said no no you must go you've got to go this is really important and I think he saw how important the business was as an exit strategy for us And I think if he had said, no, I need you here, which of course he was never going to do, but if he had said that, I would have stayed. My mum and dad came and looked after the children, so I was really lucky in that instance to have everybody looked after. So I just got on the train and went and did it, put a brave face on, put on some makeup, smiled for the cameras, and I don't think you would have known what was really going on behind the scenes. Mm. You know, Joe Brand was there hosting it. Lots of smiling and laughing for the camera, having a jolly time, but actually... Oh, my gosh, it was a really tough thing to do. Are you glad you did it? I don't think I'd have done anything different, really, even Mm. now. As long as I knew everybody was looked after, the children were safe and were being looked after and Rob was was stable, I knew he was stable, I knew he was alive. He wasn't going to be doing very much because he was lying on this backboard. So I don't think I'd have done anything different now. We were talking earlier about the army has sort of discipline and structure and the opposite of that is adaptability and resilience and you're demonstrating exactly now 
you build resilience at times when you don't think you've got it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, when the chips are down. And so you built your business up. It wasn't just a little hobby that you did on the side. It ended up becoming a national multi-million pound company, mm-hmm. 11 million pounds you were turning over. Yeah. You were doing incredibly well. Mm-hmm. I was always in awe of you. I was watching <laughs> you thinking, gosh, this is incredible what you achieved yeah. and being so humble as well. And then COVID struck. So we'd been in a, a villa business very specifically aimed at families with small children. So one or more children under the age of five had a very strong vision to build a brand that really spoke to those families very, very clearly. And we had lots and lots of military families who were clients of ours as well. And then in 2016, I'd got investment into the business from a German VC to develop our own resort brand. So we'd started to go in a slightly different direction. We still had all our villas, but now we were designing a resort brand. And that was really where the business began to grow exponentially. And that was in 2016. And then in 2019, so our third year of having our resorts, we had grown 65%. I had the team of 35 or something. We were just about to sign on the second round of investment, which would have really been amazing. The idea was to essentially fan these resorts out across Europe. And so we were on track to do something that nobody had ever done before and created an entirely new category. And then COVID came. We'd done £2.2 million worth of revenue in January. We'd done another £1.5 in February and then March came. In travel, we knew what was coming. We had seen people coming back from ski resorts. So we knew what was coming before we were locked down. And it was very, very clear that travel was going to have a, a very tough time. And of course, for us, because we'd invested and innovated so much, we didn't have the millions of pounds sitting in the bank, which some travel companies had. We were not able to see our way through it. We did as much as we could for all our customers, as much as we could for our team. But there were no winners in the travel industry in COVID. Nobody won, not anybody. It was a a horrible, horrible experience to see the whole thing just fall to pieces and how people behaved Our children were attacked online. We had to go to the police. I mean, it was just awful. And it wasn't anything any of us could do. It was completely out of our hands. So we closed it, and then I took the remnants of it into Thomas Cook. I was hired to be head of product development, so head of creating new concepts. And I sat on the senior team at Thomas Cook. So I did that, which for somebody whose values are around freedom and choice was a very tough call. You know, somebody who's been in charge for a long time had their own team, been able to drive their own vision. Working in a corporate was a very, very tough... Well, I didn't do it for very long. (laughs) That must have been a really tough time. I mean, COVID was hard for Mm -hmm. so many Mm -hmm. people. Some people sort of look back on COVID as this wonderful time where they got a really good suntan and their garden looked amazing. But, you know, for you, it was quite different. Going from being a sort of businesswoman who had all this stuff going on and it's something that like having the carpet pulled out from underneath you, but yeah. you picked yourself up, even though at the time you probably thought, I'm not doing this very well, you mm-hmm. managed to do it. Mm-hmm. And so tell us what you're doing now. What yeah. have you created now? I really decided I needed to double down on all my mindset work, all my stuff to do with resilience. I had always been interested in personal growth and leadership, you know, what makes us strong and resilient people. And so during COVID... You know, you don't have a choice when you're really scraping the bottom, do you? You have to just commit to putting one foot in front of the other, back to that phrase, one foot in front of the other, and committing to do whatever you can to find a way out. 
so I did work at Thomas Cook for about 10 months. I couldn't do much more than that. It was as long as I could stomach. Since then, I have been doing a few things, mostly consultancy work and mostly consultancy work for travel businesses. Now, remember, travel businesses got absolutely wiped out during COVID. So a lot of work helping them to you know, work out how do you engage a consumer in a post-COVID world. I feel very strongly that consumers are very different. They're making decisions from a different perspective now, very values-led. You know, we've got really some very, very key things going on, like great concern for the environment and so on. So I'm helping travel businesses to reposition and rebuild their teams and rebuild themselves to get back to growth. And that's been amazing work. I've designed a family concept for a chain of hotel brands I am working with a festival and helping them with their team and getting them to growth. So really interesting stuff. And then at the same time, my husband actually left the military about four years into. So after his crash, life in the Air Force didn't have the same shine that it had previously. And by that stage, I'd grown the business to a point where he could come and join us. We'd worked together for more than a decade. And then during COVID, he went back into the military. He's now instructing instructors to teach pilots how to fly at Wittering. And the military's been really good for us. He had a great reputation and and a great set of skills that are very rare. So they were very happy to have him back. He's coming to the end of his current contracts. And so what we've done now, really speaking to this point about resilience, we have created a business that helps slightly larger businesses than what we've been used to with their business continuity risk and resilience planning. Rob's experience as a fast jet pilot and how you get trained to think about the what if moments. So what if a cyber attack happens? What if your factory burns down? What are you going to do next? As a pilot, you are forever thinking about the what if moments. You're simulating, you're training, you're being chased by dogs, you're being swung around in a thing that makes you sick. You know, you're you're doing all of that training. And so now we go into businesses and we help them. We literally recreate what would happen if a cyber attack happened, for example. So we have a series of black envelopes and we build a story that says, okay, you haven't had any bookings today or you haven't sold anything today, there's something wrong. Now you get a ransomware attack, what are you going to do now? So we're training the senior teams to react to those big events. On a bigger point, I really have a belief that as a country we are out of an era of stability and now into what's been called an era of polycrisis or permacrisis. Mm-hmm. And us as a nation, we're not that resilient. And so I'm beginning to start a campaign called Resilient Britain, which is really going to bring businesses together with some leading politicians and so on to talk about how we become more resilient. And definitely a strong part of that is us as individuals becoming resilient in ourselves, because that's a major, major risk for us as a country if we just are not strong enough in ourselves. So you're still a military wife? I'm military wife for the third time. <laughs> Living in military quarters? No, we're not, not in yet. military quarters. No, we're in our own home and we are stable. We haven't moved around. We've been in one place for quite a considerable number of years now. Our days of driving white vans around and shifting furniture and all the things you do when you're a military wife have for the moment stopped. And your business is busy? Are you sort of getting a lot of work in? My own consultancy work is really busy and very varied, as I said. Our impact resilience, the risk and resilience business, was launched just a few weeks ago. So we've got our first few clients, but lots of interest. So I'm excited about that. All the experience that I've had today is coming into this new business. And is there a big appetite for this sort of polycrisis of Mm -hmm. work? Is there a lot of... 
demand for that? Yes, I think there's also an education to happen. It's not something that most people want to think about and it's not something that most people would rather spend money on the on the shiny new things. The reality is, though, that we are in this new era and it was very much talked about at Davos 23 that we are in this period of instability and the issues that business is going to be dealing with are profound. So the supply chain failure is not just something that's going to be sorted out within a few months. That is very deeply rooted. And so that's going to be many, many years before it's sorted out. The energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, economic and political turmoil. Unfortunately, we're in this for a long time. So we as leaders are going to need to lead in a very different way. And we're going to need to make sure that we are resilient as individuals in order for us to lead our teams strongly. Huge thank you to Wendy for coming on our podcast this month. What an absolute inspiration. Don't forget, if you'd like to listen to any previous episodes of our podcast, they are all available on any good podcast platform and on our website at recruitforspouses.co.uk.